Whenever we talk about the operation, the external works of the Trinity in creation, providence, and salvation, we must remember that they, these persons are undivided. Uh, one way of putting this is, well, in their external works, the, the, these external works of the Trinity, they remain undivided. Now, why is that? Well, the reason that they are undivided in their external works and separable and indivisible is because they are undivided, un inseparable, indivisible in essence, right? And so who God is actually then has major implications then for how God acts. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Right. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. My name is Sam Birig, and I have the privilege of serving here at Midwestern and Spurgeon College. It's a dean of the college, uh, dean of Spurgeon College, and I'm a guest host today. So uh, I'm here with Dr. Matthew Barrett, Dr. Matthew Michael Barrett, the doctor of doxology, <laughs> um, for the purpose of discussing his new book, uh, Simply Trinity, the Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit, um, is out universally uh, everywhere where books are sold. So um, I'm here serving the listener big time because I'm a, a learner along with them discussing uh, primarily uh, chapters 9 and 10, which focus on the person of the Spirit um, and what the church has historically confessed and has become known to be inseparable operations. So I'm excited uh, to dive in. So how are you, Dr. Doxology? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, it's, it's fantastic to be on the other side of the table this time. And uh, I do have to say, you know, being on the other side of the table, both your voice and that that beard just make me feel like I'm being uh, interviewed by Charles Spurgeon himself. Here, so. here we are. We, I mean, <laughs> he was a doctor of doxology. We are here. He was here. Uh, to, to work on our worship. We're only missing, you know, some cigars, Sam. That's right, so, that's right. But, Appropriately uh, <laughs> so. Appropriately so. That's good. Well, uh, to get us started, we're going to get into some questions here, but I want to just, um, I want to unveil for the, the audience a little bit where Dr. Uh, Barrett here just flexes on us with some prose, actually, on, on page 27. I just want to give them, uh, the folks, a taste here. Um, you are setting up, um, what I'm about to read to them, you're setting up uh, the story about where you go into the bookstore and oh. you observe all of these yeah. Trinitarian, uh, social Trinitarian books and this sort of thing. And I just want to give the audience a taste here. So this is the pros you'll engage with here. So Dr. Barrett writes, Southern California is a paradox. Its sunburned concrete stretches for miles on end, but you can always count on any stretch of concrete leading to a beach with golden sand and white capped waves. Each summer, our family escapes the oppressive humidity of the Midwest for sunny SoCal, known for its immutable weather of 75 degrees, it's always worth it. Each day I read and write, but in the afternoons and evenings, we trek on down to the beachfront to cool off in the Pacific and watch the sunset show off its orange, pink, and yellow canvas, as it were, on one of, Al one of LA's fashion models. 
uh, walking down the runway one summer, and you go on and on. But I just, I just thought when I read that, I was like, the bear is just flexing <laughs> on us. It's talking about immutable weather and sun, sunburned concrete, and so uh, anyway, just to, to that's what you'll get, folks, if you you grab this book. So. <laughs> well, it's uh, you know, I suppose if I can do it one day, I maybe I'll uh, be a theologian you know, for my day job. And then at night, you know, I sneak away and, and try to uh, flex and, and write some uh, some mystery novels. <laughs> I can feel it. I can feel it. We have to make money one way. That's right. Uh, right? So <laughs> not that, you know, theology, but, uh, you know, perhaps uh, a few mystery novels here and there might help, might, might help the family out. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, let, let's start off uh, with some, some easy stuff and just calibrating um, on, on even terms and those sorts of things. Um, chapter nine focuses on the spirit. So, so what distinguishes the spirit from the father and the son? You know, that is a question that doesn't often get asked. Uh, we sometimes only ask that question when we're talking about the father and the son. And, uh, unfortunately the spirit sometimes gets left out of our conversation. Of course, I, I, I can tell by the way you ask it, we're assuming the Spirit is one with the Father and the Son, of course, uh, one in nature or essence, and we can come back to that later. But when we talk about what distinguishes the Holy Spirit here, we actually want to speak in a way and use vocabulary that's going to be different from the way we talk about the Son. So when we talk about the Son, we say, uh, the Son is distinguished by His eternal relation of origin. That's really a fancy way of talking about something quite biblical. The Son is begotten from the Father's essence from all eternity. Well, when we talk about the Spirit, uh, well, the Spirit isn't just a, a second son uh, or a grandson or a twin brother or that all of those uh, fall short of, of how Scripture speaks of the Spirit and would, well, if we're honest, those would actually be disastrous for the, our doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, instead, the Spirit is spoken of in a way uh, that gets at that name itself, Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is said to be the one who spirates. Uh, sometimes the language of proceeding is used. Uh, all this to say what distinguishes the Spirit is, is just this, the Spirit proceeds or aspirated from the Father and the Son and from all eternity. And so this is the Spirit's eternal relation of origin. You know, it's so fascinating because when you look at the way Scripture describes the Spirit, it does it in so many different ways. But when we come to, say, John's Gospel, and, and for those who are you know reading Simply Trinity, they'll no, notice that John's Gospel plays a major it's a major factor throughout the whole book. And here on the, the chapter on the Holy Spirit, I come back to John's gospel because Jesus has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. We think, for example, of John 14 and 15 and 16 in particular. In John 15, for example, uh, Jesus calls the Holy the Spirit the helper. This, this is a unique title. And he says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And of course, this is not the first time that Jesus has referred to the Spirit in this way. If you go back to uh, John 14, for example, just the one chapter before, uh, Jesus says something similar. 
Uh, he's talking about, he's trying to actually comfort his disciples because he's teaching them that he that the time is going to come when he will depart. But he promises that he will still be with them. And of course, the disciples are wondering, well, how is this even a possibility? Christ is going to ascend, but the Spirit of Christ will then journey with his disciples and even instruct them in the way they should go. And then Jesus says this in John 14, 26. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And if you keep reading in John 16, you'll notice that Jesus uses this language again uh, to speak of the Spirit, not only as a helper, but as one that Jesus that the Father and Jesus himself are going to send. Now, uh, here Jesus is uh, naturally enough uh, preparing the way so that uh, when we open the book of Acts, for example, we see that, well, he has come through on his promise. Um, And the Holy Spirit has indeed been sent by the Father and the Son at Pentecost, for example. We can't forget that. But at the same time, uh, Jesus's words also remind us of that cardinal truth that's so crucial to our doctrine of the Trinity, and it's this, that the missions of, say, the Son or the Spirit, these are consistent with and these are fitting, and they actually reveal uh, these persons' processions. And so the very fact that the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son, given in this way, to the disciples and to the church, is meant to teach us that, well, this is the same Spirit who is from the Father and the Son, uh, who proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So this is not accidental or arbitrary that the Spirit is the one who comes at Pentecost. No, this is, this is actually meant to take us back into uh, a, a deeper discussion of the eternal, imminent life of God to recognize that the reason we call the Spirit this third person of the Godhead is not because he's inferior in any way. Rather, it's because this is the Spirit who from all eternity proceeds or is spirated from the Father and the Son. And so this is one of the reasons why the fathers were really clear that this and this alone distinguishes the Spirit uh, as the third person of the Godhead. Right. I really appreciate the the term you use, fitness. Um, I think that's really helpful and and uh... Yeah, as we as we think about these things, okay, let's uh, drill down a little bit on on kind of order and relations of origin. Uh, we commonly refer uh, to the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, um, but by that we we surely don't mean um, time or rank, right? So uh, maybe develop that a little bit for us. Uh, what we mean when we say the third person of the Trinity? Yes, that's a really important qualification, um, and whether we're talking about the Son's generation or begettingness or the Spirit's spiration, we immediately have to say to those listening, uh, but, but we don't mean by this, uh, we don't mean, for example, that the Son is begotten in a human way. Uh, That would involve change and a succession of moments, uh, time, a before and an after. Uh, Likewise, uh, we we don't uh, ignore those qualifications when we come to the Holy Spirit. This is the eternal spirit we are referring to, who is equal with the Father and the Son in essence. And so for that reason, we have to immediately qualify and say, well, yes, this is the spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, 
But this procession is an eternal procession. There's no before or after. There never was a time, for example, when the Spirit was not Spirit or the Father and Son were without uh, the Spirit. Um, There never uh, was a time in which uh, we would say the Spirit came into existence. Uh, No, this is the Spirit who, who who proceeds from the Father and Son from everlasting to everlasting, uh, who has no beginning or end. Uh, That said, we also need to add that uh, because this is an eternal procession, uh, there is no no before and after, there's no posteriority, as we we might say, uh, but there's also no inferiority. So not only is this an eternal procession, but this is uh, a type of spiration that in no way involves any type of hierarchy, any type of priority that would make the spirit in any way inferior or less or subordinate. Now, that's really important to say, because sometimes in our the way that we use language, you know, we, we talk about uh, the spirit being the third person in the Trinity. Well, we have to be careful when we say that because we surely do not mean by that that he is third in priority or that he is uh, third on, on you know, the, the imaginary ladder, so to speak, uh, as if uh, this spirit is less than not only the Father but, but the Son as well. Uh, remember, when we talk about the Son's generation from the Father, we are uh, quick to say uh, this, this is— uh, an eternal beginning from the Father's essence, and therefore the Son is co-equal with the Father in nature. Well, likewise, when we refer to the Holy Spirit, we don't uh, we don't throw that that important point out the window. We remember, oh, this is this is the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son as from one source from all eternity, and therefore this not only distinguishes the Spirit as Spirit, but also ensures that this is uh, the Spirit who is co-equal with the Father and the Son in nature. Yeah, I think Anselm is is helpful here, always helpful to to throw in some Anselm, but he writes, for the Son is from his Father, that is, from God, who is his Father, while the Holy Spirit is not from God as his Father, but only from God who is Father. Mm. Um, so, and then you also write, uh, adding in there, applied theologically, the Spirit is the one breathed out by the Father mm. and the Son in eternity, which explains why the Spirit is the one sent from the Father in, um, in the Son in history. The Spirit's mission then reflects the Spirit's eternal uh, relation of origin. Mm. Um, okay, so in, um, in your chapter on the Spirit, you, you make a lot of this idea uh, is this, of the Spirit as, as gift. Mm. Um, and the other day, you actually just read this, but the other day um, I had the opportunity, I was just walking through in my own devotions, uh, and I came across John 14, 26, which you read a moment ago, where I'm going to read it again, but it says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have to say. And I, and I was reflecting on, because I was reading, prepping for this, just thinking about what he is such a gift yeah. um, that, that he's teaching me. He is carrying on my discipleship. Um, so what do you mean by the Spirit is a gift? Could you unpack for that? Yeah. Unpack that a bit. Well, uh, this is such a pervasive theme across the Scriptures. And uh, this language of gift, it's actually quite surprising. You know, when I was writing this, uh, I, I, have, 
I knew, okay, yes, uh, this is a concept that, um, you know, both in church history is used of the Spirit. And then I also knew, okay, when certain passages, but as I started to go back to the text of Scripture, I was surprised and reminded of how often this language is used of the Spirit uh, in, in a way that uh, really puts the spotlight, so to speak, on the third person of the Trinity. Now, let me see if I can just give maybe a few examples of this. Uh, I can't help but think uh, of John chapter 7. Um, this is that point in the ministry of Jesus in which things are uh, becoming quite controversial and heating up quite a bit uh, as Jesus Jesus is, um, you know, come, coming up to that point in the Jewish calendar, which we would refer to as the Feast of Booths. And uh, Jesus, uh, well, he always has a way of getting everybody's attention. And uh, John 7 is no exception. He stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on uh, to tell us in the very next verse, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who, who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Isn't it interesting that John, uh, he helps us out here, right, uh, as interpreters, and he says, let me, just, let me just tell you what Jesus is saying. He's actually talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that there is Old Testament language in the background here. Uh, this, why, why is it, for example, if John is right, that Jesus seems to associate something like water and pouring and drinking with the Holy Spirit. He can even mix metaphors to say, well, there, this is a, a flowing river uh, of living water. I think he may be actually echoing uh, the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, for example, he also speaks this way of and, and associates uh, water, living water, with the Holy Spirit. And isn't it uh, interesting that um, as uh, the passage goes on, uh, we discover, well, across John's gospel, that this living water and this Holy Spirit that Jesus is speaking of is actually one who is given. And so you think, for example, of uh, Jesus's encounter with the Samaritan woman, interestingly enough, also involving water, right? In John chapter 4, in which Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would, he would have given you living water. I mean, this is a remarkable encounter because the gift Jesus extends is nothing less, as we learn throughout John's gospel, than eternal life. But as we also know from John's gospel, eternal life comes only through the Holy Spirit. And so how appropriate it is then for John to start speaking in this way, um, well, it's not surprising then that when we turn the page and we get to the book of Acts, the apostles then are going to pick up on this idea and actually be very explicit and say, this Holy Spirit is the gift that God has given to you for eternal life. Uh, one of the most famous passages, of course, is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Uh, you have this response by Peter. 
in which he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive, here it comes, right, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, Peter is responding to that miraculous event that they just observed, Pentecost. But notice what he's doing. He is extending the Holy Spirit to them and saying, this is the very gift that I am referring to. And then if you keep reading in the book of Acts, Peter uh, will, will go on and use this language of again when he refers to the resurrection. He says, you know, you crucified Jesus, but God, uh, the God of, of your fathers, he's raised Jesus, he's exalted Jesus uh, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then he says in Acts 5.32, something uh, that, that just grabs your attention. He says, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, I could go on. If if you keep reading in Acts chapter uh, 8, Acts chapter 10, this theme keeps coming through again and again and again. Luke uh, is going to return to it uh, when he talks about the Gentiles, for example, to say that this gift of the Holy Spirit, interesting language, right? is poured out even on the Gentiles there. Again, uh, this is the this imagery of water. Uh, here, though, he's using the language of gift in particular. Well, we could go on, but I think that the point in all of this language is not only for us to recognize what we receive, uh, which is the Holy Spirit himself, Uh, but to actually uh, lift our eyes heavenward to understand, well, if this is the Holy Spirit that is given to us from the Father and the Son for our salvation, could it be the case that this is meant to reflect uh, this Spirit's eternal origin? Uh, And it's, it's, uh, I think, appropriate then that when you uh, read someone like an Augustine, he will then say, yes, Absolutely, the Holy Spirit then is the gift. We can call the Holy Spirit the gift uh, from the Father and the Son because this is a spirit, uh, he says, that proceeds from the Father and Son and, and the Son from all eternity. Um, if I can quote him just once, he says this. He says it means that the Holy Spirit is a kind of inexpressible communion or fellowship of the Father and the Son. And Augustine, if you've read Augustine, you know that Augustine really has a lot to say then about how this gift language is meant then to shed light on the Spirit's eternal spiration. Okay, so gift is in the chapter, uh, you discuss these three waves. And so it's actually the second um, of these three waves. And the third, uh, you talk about breath first and then gift, and then the third is love. And you write um, here, as long as each person is a subsistence of the same divine nature, all three persons holding the same divine nature in common. And so, and as long as God's nature or essence is identical with all that is within him's attributes, then whatever attribute we have in mind, it must be true of each person of the Trinity. That is the case with love. To confess God is love is to confess that the triune God uh, is love. So, Help us think about how certain attributes are appropriated upon one person or another, or are you comfortable with this, with Thomas's language, this idea of terminating? Talk to us about uh, yeah. appropriation. Yeah, you know, and and 
Uh, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, sometimes this is a big area of confusion. Um, uh, and uh, a lot of times uh, when we talk about the Trinity, we, we tend to blur categories. So it's really crucial here that, that we get this right. Uh, on the one hand, just like you said, Sam, on the one hand, uh, when we talk about the triune God, uh, we must affirm that this is the simple triune God. In other words, we are affirming divine simplicity. It means that God is without parts. He's not composed or compounded. Um, his, his attributes aren't you know, different percentages of his being. Uh, rather, his essence is his attributes, and his attributes is essence. Um, all that is in God uh, simply is God. And so when we're talking about the Trinity, we have to be uh, really emphatic at this point to say, well, these persons are not uh, parts in God. Uh, they are actually persons, or as you said a minute ago, uh, subsistences. I think that's an important word to highlight. Um, so in that sense, whatever attribute we are referring to, it could be holiness, it could be love, uh, it could be immutability. Uh, there are so many. Uh, whatever attribute we are referring to, uh, we are saying the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is dot, 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 is holiness, is love. Uh, it's not as if, um, you know, for example, it's not as if, uh, you know, we turn to the Son and we say, oh, he, he has uh, a larger percentage of holiness or love or immutability yeah. than the Father, or, or the Father has more than the Holy Spirit. No, this is the, the one simple, undivided, indivisible uh, trinity we are referring to. Uh, now, with, with that big, big, big qualification yeah. uh, put in place, um, you, you hinted at something that I, I think that the fathers can really help us with here. Why is it, for example, that they feel uh, comfortable uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit in particular uh, as love? I don't think it's because they've denied divine simplicity. In fact, if if we go back to the fathers, they're they're very clear uh, to affirm it. Rather, I think they're picking up on the scriptural language here uh, to uh, get at the very idea that well, when we talk about uh, the spirit and who the spirit is and what the spirit does, it is appropriate at times to use this language of love. Uh, let me see if I can just give. Uh, an, an example of this, and, and Sam, you used that language of, you know, terminating. Um, that also can be very helpful. I'm sure we'll get to it in a minute when we, we can talk about, you know, something as important as inseparable operations and appropriations. But the way that, um, you know, as we're, we're seeing what the, whole, what the Holy Spirit uh, does, we can speak of something uh, being terminating on uh, a particular person of the Godhead. Uh, how do we see this in Scripture? Well, we see in all kinds of ways. Um, identifying love with the Spirit is, is a very common scriptural move. You think of um, uh, Romans in particular, where Paul uh, will refer, uh, when he's talking about how we've been justified by faith, he says we then have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says something that can feel a bit uh, absurd. He says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And then if you keep reading uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, he talks about why that's the case. Well, th this suffering obviously is hard, so, so why would anyone rejoice in it? And he says that, well, our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love 
has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's that, that, gift, that gift language again, right? Well, pouring out love within us, well, this is something that the Holy Spirit uh, something that the Holy Spirit does. And by pouring out the love of God, the Spirit himself, Paul will um, make a big point of this later in Romans, he says the Holy Spirit himself is poured into our hearts. And we can even say that this same Spirit then indwells us and makes us holy. Or if we go over to you know a book like Galatians 5, for example, um, I don't think it's accidental that Paul then will talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and he'll say, well, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, among other things. Now, isn't this interesting? Because the Spirit is manifested whenever we love God and our neighbor, and, well, for that reason, Paul doesn't uh, sound really all that different than from you know Peter or Luke um, when they use that gift language in Acts, and they talk about the Holy Spirit being poured out. Uh, Paul also uses this type of language. God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So apparently uh, the Spirit as gift and the Spirit as love are not disconnected from each other, but are two ways of describing the third person of the Godhead which makes a lot of sense because love is a gift after all. And in, you know, we could say that, well, if it's a gift, then in that sense, uh, we are, how blessed we are then to be on the receiving end of that gift. Now, that type of, um, that, that way of referring then to the Holy Spirit as love, uh, that should actually uh, not only give us a pretty sturdy foundation for how to talk about the third person of the Godhead. But um, if you think of like a book like First John, for example, John seems to think that, uh, well, this, this language uh, also gives us really a foundation for talking about uh, what it means for us to be united to God and actually to then love one another. I'm thinking uh, not of the Gospel of John, but of 1 John in particular. You may remember in 1 John 4, uh, John says God is love. Uh, But then as he moves forward, uh, John raises this question of, well, how does God abide in us? How is his love uh, perfected in us? Uh, If God is love, then, well, could it be the case that uh, whoever abides in love actually abides in God? And John is going to, at that point, start, you know, jumping out of his chair (laughs) to say, yes, absolutely. Well, what does this abiding look like? Uh, In in 1 John 4, uh, he he tells us, he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Uh, And there's that gift language again connected to love. Uh, I, I like to think that that John, his logic here in, in 1 John 4 uh, might go something like this. First of all, God is love, he says. Second of all, whoever abides in love abides in God. And then third, we know we abide in him, in his love. Why? Because the Spirit abides in us and has been given to us. So this, this is a... Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, 
John is talking about love, but but it's a very rigorous logic he's using here, not only to talk about the way that we abide in God, but to actually refer to the Spirit as love, as love itself. That's good. Yeah, I think you uh, hopefully you quote right around the same spot uh, Augustine here, mm. and he says it is God, the Holy Spirit, proceeding from. God who fires man to the love of God and neighbor when he has been given to him and he himself is love. And I just love that idea yeah. that it's God firing this to, you know, to us. Absolutely. Well, uh, Augustine is, is so full of wisdom at this point. Oh, um, I, I, you know, of course we're talking about, you know, uh, simply Trinity, but uh, I would say, you know, go read Augustine himself because right, he, yeah. he actually articulates it much better than I can. Yeah. Well. Folks should read both. That's good. We, we, there's other things uh, that we could waste our time on, but these are wonderful things to, to consider and, and contemplate. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit here and, and discuss um, inseparable operations. And, and I just want to start off with a couple statements, and then we want to get into these. But uh, the first one just is our, our triune God is not three centers of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or nor three wills. And, and when I'm out and about doing ministry in my own church or um, even just in, uh, yeah, in the SBC or wherever I may find myself. This is something I see a lot, uh, this idea of uh, functionally people conceiving of God as three centers of consciousness Mm. and this idea of psychological persons um, has gotten into, uh, gotten us into some trouble a little bit. So uh, what do we mean when we're talking about inseparable operations? Um, how have you seen, even anecdotally, this this idea of three centers of consciousness working? Yeah. What do you think? You know, I've had the same experience as you, Sam. Uh, so often, uh, we maybe unintentionally sort of slip into that that type of mentality, and uh, we don't realize it, but uh, we can actually sound quite tritheistic, yeah. uh, as if uh, these are individuals. Uh, like we're individuals, uh, persons like we are persons, as if they have their own center of consciousness or their own wills, which would actually be catastrophic for right. the Trinity. Uh, a Trinity with three wills is, is simply just tritheism. Uh, so, uh, and sometimes this comes out in painful ways. Um, for example, if you were to ask, well, why why is it that when we look at uh, creation or providence or or redemption? Why is it the case that uh, they seem to the, the Father, Son, and Spirit seem to to work as one? And sometimes you'll get an answer back. Well, they uh, they cooperate with each other, uh, and and they work together uh, like like we might cooperate with one another. I, I've even uh, seen at times the the Trinity uh, referred to as um, dance partners. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know if it's country music or pop, but uh, it almost doesn't matter because the the Father, Son, and Spirit are are thought of as oh they're they're like uh, holding hands and they're doing this dance together, and um, that's what it means. You know, they're 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 like dance partners cooperating and just they're really synchronized. You know, they're they're really synchronized in the way that they move and that sort of thing. Or sometimes. Um, uh, sometimes the way, that, well, the answer that's given is, well, uh, they work as one because they have a division of labor, um, as if, well, okay, uh, the father, he's going to work. And then, um, you know, the son spirit just kind of sit back and do nothing. And then, okay, we're going to shift gears here. Now, now the, it's the, the son's turn and, 
and um, the the father can you know take a break that sort of thing. Um, uh, and they sort of divvy up uh, the work of God, and um, they can even act. Uh, some will say, well, they could even act uh, apart from each other or unilaterally without uh, you know the the one or two of the other persons of the Godhead. Um, I, I would argue that uh, those waves of of thinking about uh, Trinitarian unity are are not good enough. Uh, they're insufficient and they fall short. Uh, at worst, they could lead us into a type of tritheism. Um, at best, uh, we we sort of accidentally slip into the this idea in which we start describing the Trinity in a way that uh, doesn't preserve preserve their unity. Uh, so, how then should we talk about uh, the Trinity? And their operations. Well, uh, we were just talking about Augustine, weren't we? And Augustine has a beautiful way of of answering that question. And he says this, if I can quote him, he says, "The Father and the Son and the Holy the Holy Ghost are inseparably united in themselves, since this Trinity is one God." And then Augustine says, "And therefore, all the works of the one God are the works of the Father." of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And Augustine, of course, is not alone. Other fathers, uh, you think of um, the Cappadocians, for example, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, they're going to say something very similar. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, for example, says, we are not to think of the Father as ever parted from the Son, nor to look for the Son as separate from the Holy Spirit, as it is impossible to mount to the Father unless our thoughts are exalted uh, through the Son, so it is impossible also to say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And there, he, Gregory's actually picking up on that scriptural language. Uh, and, and then he concludes this way, if I can just quote him a little bit longer. He says, therefore, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are to be known only in a perfect trinity, in closest consequence and union with each other before all creation, before all the ages, before anything, whatever, of which we can form an idea. The Father is always Father, and in him the Son, and with the Son the Holy Spirit. And uh, this way of describing, well, this way of describing the Trinity, well, it's very different, isn't it, from the ways that we, that, well, we just talked about. What are they after? Uh, they're looking at Scripture, and they're noticing that uh, whenever we talk about the operation, the external works of the Trinity in creation, providence, and salvation, we must remember that they, these persons are undivided. Uh, one way of putting this is, well, in their external works, the, the, these external works of the Trinity, they remain undivided. Now, why is that? Well, the reason that they are undivided in their external works and separable and indivisible is because they are undivided, inseparable, indivisible in essence, right? And so who God is actually then has major implications then for how God acts. Um, this is so crucial because uh, it affects, I think, it not only keeps us from some of those dangers we talked about, which would violate the unity of God, but it also helps us think through what it means when we talk about an act of God. 
uh, when we talk about an act of God, we have to remember this is the one and same action, one and the same action. Why? Because, well, Father, Son, and Spirit are from the one and same divine nature. And so whatever work or, or operation we are referring to, we can say, well, it is from the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, to you know, throw in another Gregory into the mix, he says it this way, and, and notice here how this is even affecting our spirituality and, and the way we contemplate God. He says, no sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. Uh, all that to say, if we're going to avoid the what we might call the heresy of inequality or dividing up the persons into a, t- a type of tritheistic uh, understanding of God, uh, this idea of inseparable operations is absolutely fundamental. Good, yeah. I think um, inseparable operations is so key as you're referring to because I, I just imagine uh, the Christian, the member of, of the church, when they are they're singing, mm. and I'm so zealous and so thankful you know, for this book because I, I'm eager to get the space in their, yeah. in their mind um, filled with the right things. That's know, right. That, that they're not thinking about um, their Lord as is, um, you know, yeah, three centers of, of consciousness. Well, you uh, you address a, uh, a his- historic heresy called Sabellianism, and and I, I can hear people on the other side maybe uh, having some thoughts here uh, about just this sounds like it may conflate the three persons. This idea of mm-hmm. um, inseparable operations, and and so how how does this not conflate the person? Yeah, very good question. Um, sometimes uh, you do hear that objection, and it's usually you know usually it goes along those lines. You know, if there are three, you know, these are three persons, uh, and and if the three persons act as you know one by virtue of, of this common nature, as we're saying, or common will, well, how can can they can they actually be three persons? Um, that type of objection sometimes gets raised. Um, I think at this point we need to go back to uh, some of those fundamentals of Trinitarian thought. Uh, I, I think that the objection doesn't necessarily consider uh, the way that an inseparable operation, on the one hand, may be uh, distinctly appropriated by Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit alike, and yet in a way that is perfectly consistent. Uh, with their those eternal relations of origin we referred to. Um, and uh, that means then that, well, on the one hand, uh, we can say that uh, this Trinity acts as one, uh, as we just said a minute ago. Uh, and yet at the same time, um, when we uh, are noticing the way that a partic- something in particular may be appropriated, uh, by the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, we are reminded at that point that, well, that is fitting and consistent uh, with that person's eternal relation of origin, whether it's the Father as unbegotten or the Son as begotten or the Spirit, uh, like we were talking about uh, not long ago, the Spirit as spirated. Um, that raises, of course, uh, an, uh, th- this issue then of, well, 
when we're talking about the external works of the Trinity, on the one hand, that means that they work inseparably. And yet, at the same time, in this single act, the divine persons are working in a way that is perfectly consistent and fitting with their those eternal relations of origin ad intra, as we might say in Latin, right. uh, in and of themselves, apart from the world, apart from creation or salvation. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears just a little bit um, and and take it uh, ad extra for a moment. Okay. Um, so, so you you start your um, chapter really by exampling. Uh, inseparable operations through the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of, of salvation. And you write, Paul grounds our adoption, namely uh, our adoption in time and space uh, in our eternal predestination. So our salvation um, in, is in real time. It was settled, if, if you will, uh, before time. Maybe speak to the fact that inseparable operations is um, necessary for our salvation. Yeah, Talk yeah. to us about that. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. You know, when we, so we've been talking about inseparable operations, and then at the same time, uh, we've been introducing this idea of appropriations. Um, And, you know, when we talk about uh, an appropriation, uh, it's been, you know, defined in, in, you know, different ways. But essentially here, we're referring to to the way uh, something or or an act may, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Sam, may terminate on a particular person or be appropriated. Uh, by one particular person of the Trinity in in a special manner. Uh, in other words, what we're trying to communicate is, well, it's always the one undivided God acting according to his one undivided will. Um, and And yet we're also saying attention may be given to a certain person of the Godhead, but always in a way that corresponds with the Father being unbegotten, the Son begotten, and the Spirit spirated. Now, if we if we hold on to both of those right inseparable operations and divine appropriations well we'll notice that uh then the way we can act we 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 approach or appropriate then uh whether it's creation uh whether it's salvation or even specific aspects of salvation you mentioned adoption for example well we can actually speak of each of those in a way that's faithful to who the persons are from from eternity. Uh, I can't help, for example, of thinking about the way some of these appropriations correspond, uh, right? So you think of the father, for example, uh, Gregory of Nyssa would speak this way, where he'll talk about the father as the beginning of activity or the fountain and and uh, Calvin speaks this way too, the fountain and wellspring of all things. And uh, they'll say things like, well, every work has its beginning from the Father. Well, they can say that because the Father is unbegotten in eternity. Or they can turn to the Son, for example. Uh, you think of Gregory again, who will say every work is advancing through the Son. And Calvin can talk about the Father's wisdom and counsel and the ordered disposition of all things. Well, they can ref- they can speak this way because the Son is begotten by the Father in eternity. What about the Holy Spirit? Well, likewise with the Holy Spirit, uh, Gregory can say something like, "Every work is completed in the Holy Spirit," and Calvin will say, "Well, this, this, the Father and the Son's power and efficacy is the Holy Spirit," and they can speak this way because the Spirit is spirated uh, by the Father and the Son from eternity. 
Well, if that's the case, then when we come to a doctrine like creation, that same type of pattern uh, follows. So uh, when we refer to, to appropriations, we can say, well, uh, uh, the Father, he's the original cause of creation. The Son is the creative cause, and the Holy Spirit is the, the perfecting cause. Uh, Basil of Caesarea talks this way, and it, this may sound like uh, pretty sophisticated, but actually uh, this is just another, another way of, of talking the way John does in John chapter 1 or the way that the Psalms, uh, you think of Psalm 33, uh, they'll speak this way as well when they talk about uh, the, the way that creation is brought into uh, existence. Uh, but then when we turn to salvation, we see it once more. Um, and and I, I just have to point out the, the biblical theologian in me. So, yeah. so I, I, I'm hoping, Sam, this will, this will really uh, you know, uh, light a fire under you. Yeah. Um, you know, we can talk about creation, and sometimes we think, well, um, we're talking about creation. Okay, let's put that aside, and let's then move on to salvation. Uh, but really, if we look at Scripture, uh, salvation can also be spoken of as recreation, right? Well, how does that then work? Well, um, sometimes, uh, and, and across the pro-Nicene tradition, they speak this way. Uh, they can refer to creation. Uh, they can refer uh, to creation and uh, attribute this to the Father, uh, to redemption to the Son, or what we might call creation redeemed. Uh, then they can refer to sanctification or recreation uh, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, so they really connect the dots then between creation and recreation so that when they come to salvation itself, they follow this same pattern. They'll say the Father is the author, architect of, of our salvation. The Son is the redeemer of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the sanctifier of our salvation. And interestingly enough, uh, when they come to adoption, they, they do something quite similar. I think, if I can just pick on one example here, uh, Thomas Aquinas, I think Thomas Aquinas uh, has a point here when he uh, is going to be reflecting on a passage like uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Thomas will then say, well, the Father is the author of adoption, the Son is the model of adoption, and the Holy Spirit is the imprint of adoption. Uh, isn't that language interesting? I think, actually, there's a reason why then you have like a Reformed confession, like the Heidel or catechism like the Heidelberg Catechism, that sounds a lot like a lot like uh, like Thomas Aquinas uh, when it says, "Well, it raises this question." It says, "Why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we also are the children of God?" And then it, appealing to Romans chapter eight and Ephesians one, the Heidelberg Catechism answers, "Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God." John one there. But we are children of God by adoption through grace for his sake. I think that's exactly what Thomas Aquinas was after. All that to say, you know, of course, of course, of course, when we talk about uh, each aspect of salvation, you think of adoption, for example, we want to immediately qualify and say, well, uh, the son, uh, well, he is a son by nature. Uh, he he is not uh, you know a son by grace um, that would actually pose quite a problem. Uh, we on the other hand we are not sons by nature but we are sons by grace. So he is a son by nature. We are a son by grace. But with that qualification aside, 
building on a passage like Ephesians 1, we can then speak of all of those spiritual benefits that we receive from the Son. We can, we can speak of those only because, well, we are those who have been adopted into the family of God. Uh, as Paul says, we are found in Christ. And that, of course, brings us back to not just inseparable operations, but the way that any particular, um, any particular benefit, in this case salvation, is then appropriated uh, by each person of the Godhead. That's good. Well, you, you brought us back. You took us biblical theology. You brought us back to, to soteriology. And I, do, I have another question for you here just to hover a bit on soteriology. And I want to do that by um, having you consider the pactum salutis, uh, the, the covenant mm. of redemption for a moment. So number one, what, what is it? Uh, and then number two, why has uh, the pact on the covenant of redemption fallen out of vogue? Yeah, you know, uh, this is such uh, such an important doctrine. Um, it used to be the case that it was uh, just very common and assumed um, uh, by the Reformed tradition in particular. And though I don't think it's you know entirely unique to them, I think that they are actually building on the patristic uh, witness before them. Uh, essentially, when we refer to the covenant of, of redemption, to be very clear, we're referring to the economy of salvation. So we're we're not here talking about, um, you know, the imminent uh, life of God. Um, we're actually referring now uh, to the way, uh, you know, if, if we can talk about the way God is then directed toward um, toward salvation itself. Um, and uh, essentially, what it means is that uh, from eternity. Uh, our salvation is not uh, something, well, that's accidental. Uh, it's not something that, uh, it's not a plan B or plan C. Actually, from eternity, our salvation has been planned, and uh, that has been planned by the Trinity. And so when we refer to this covenant of redemption, we are referring to the fact that in eternity, before the foundation of the world, uh, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, covenanted in this way to ensure uh, that our salvation would come about. Uh, now, th- they referred to this covenant in different ways. Uh, for example, they would refer uh, to the Son being appointed as our covenant surety, uh, our, our mediator, if we can put it in biblical terms, the very one who would um, enact the covenants and redeem sinners by his own blood, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. And of course, the Holy Spirit uh, is not left out either. Uh, The Holy Spirit also, as we talked about earlier, uh, we saw the Holy Spirit is very important uh, to this covenant actually coming to fruition because the Spirit is the one uh, who is going to perfect and apply uh, the work of salvation that Christ has purchased. Now, all that all of that being said, um, Reformed authors like John Owen, for example, would refer to this covenant of redemption as a compact, a covenant, a, um, a type of uh, agreement um, that was designed uh, for uh, redemption to take place. Uh, and we see this assumed uh, in countless ways by Jesus in the Gospel of John, for example, uh, the way that Jesus uh, keeps saying again and again that he uh, has been sent by the Father to fulfill the, uh, 
the mission of salvation. And he's very intent. He's very determined, in fact, uh, to bring that mission to completion so that our, um, our salvation and the covenant uh, by his blood can actually be secure. Well, all that to say, when the covenant of redemption is referred to, again, we want to make sure that uh, we are keeping our doctrine of inseparable operations uh, in the back of our mind uh, to, to, to uh, safeguard us from thinking, well, this is something that would involve uh, multiple wills. No, uh, it absolutely doesn't. Uh, it, we want to keep simplicity in mind so that it keeps us from thinking, well, um, the persons are somehow split apart. No, they are not. Um, I like the way that uh, uh, one Trinitarian theologian by the name of uh, Giles Emery uh, puts this. Uh, he says uh, at one point, and, and this is very similar to the, the language of, of John Owen. John Owen will talk about uh, how there are distinct applications of the same undivided simple will. Emery says something similar. Uh, it, it, well, and Owen will go on to say that that these distinct applications then are fitting; they correspond to those uh, to the persons themselves. Emery says something really insightful. Uh, he says uh, at one point, just as each divine person is characterized by a distinct mode of existence, each person possesses likewise a distinct mode of action. Uh, that that type of language. Um, ensures that on the one hand, we are uh, affirming uh, that no, this is the, the, the Trinity that is indivisible in this single action. And at the same time, uh, we can affirm, it doesn't matter really whether it's the covenant of redemption, uh, the covenant of, of grace, or any, any particular work of salvation in the economy. Uh, whatever, it, whatever it is, we are careful to say, well, uh, that appropriation is fitting or it corresponds in a way to that person's eternal relation of origin. Great. Let's uh, shift gears again a little bit and talk about another very important thing. And you have hinted around it a bit, but I want you to drill down a little. Let's talk about inseparable operations in the will of God. So um, how, how does inseparable operations uh, protect us from creating our Trinitarian doctrine by construing that there are in fact three wills in God. And as I was just, yeah. as I was preparing this, I, I began to think about our students here, our Spurgeon College students. And uh, I thought, man, I mean, they are trying to discern God's will for their life. Yeah. And what if there were three of them? <laughs> I mean, three different uh, gals that I'm supposed to marry or something like this. So um, yeah, help us here. Uh, there's one will in God um, and these sorts of things. Like speak to that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, uh, we have to remind ourselves, right, that uh, we, we're very prone, aren't we, um, to think of, uh, you know, God's will working in a way uh, that is basically the same as, as, as how you and I act and will things um, around us. And, uh, well, uh, that's just not true. <laughs> right. And so, I, I, yeah, I, I would— so. I would I would definitely want to say you know whether it's you know uh, the college student or the churchgoer uh, whoever it is I, I definitely want to say to them uh, be careful at that point that you don't assume that well um, God's just like you but just superior in some way just a bigger version of you um, uh, if if we go that route uh, and we start 
thinking that way, we we might then conclude, oh, there must be multiple wills in the Trinity, right. um, uh, because that's how you know multiple persons work in our human society, right? Um, but uh, actually, when we're referring to the Trinity, uh, well, we don't want to remake the Trinity in our own image. Uh, so the Trinity is um, one in essence and therefore undivided in will. Um, that being said, um, you know, I, I can sense there, you know, with maybe it's a college student, for example, who's, you know, that, that common phrase, trying to discern God's will right. in their life. Uh, sometimes in, in, in common language, we might refer to, oh, you know, is this God's will or is that God's will? We might even uh, refer to, uh, sometimes in the Reformed tradition, this happens where they'll, they'll refer to, say, uh, uh, God's moral will. Um, uh, you think, for example, of his precepts. Uh, sometimes it's called his preceptive will in which uh, he's giving commands, you know, do not murder, for example. Um, or maybe for the, the college student, you know, do not uh, commit sexual <laughs> immorality. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we might simultaneously turn around and, and um, reform theologians sometimes will refer to, well, uh, there's also uh, God's secret hidden decree. And, and sometimes they'll refer to this as, you know, uh, on the one hand, God's decretive will. Uh, to clarify, they're not actually saying there are multiple wills in right. God. Um, uh, we don't, sometimes people assume, no, they're, that we don't want to assume that. Um, they actually very much hold to God is simple, uh, God's simplicity, and therefore one will in God. Um, what are they? What are they after? Rather, I think what they're after uh, is not multiple wills in God. They're simply trying to use language in a way uh, that tries to highlight uh, the way that we then perceive God. Uh, on the one hand, we may perceive Him according to His commands. Um, uh, in which he has given us uh, very specific uh, moral precepts that guide us in the way of the covenant. Uh, at the it, it, at the same time, if we uh, you know look at things from a different angle, we also understand well this is uh, a sovereign God. We are uh, we are then submitting ourselves to in worship and and life, and so uh, according to his sovereignty, actually there's a whole lot uh, that I don't know that he has planned, and that I trust myself to, uh, and so his I trust his sovereign will to work itself out. Uh, so that even in times of suffering, when I don't know why this is taking place, I, I am trusting that he is in control. So um, not sure if that entirely answers the question, but uh, all that to say, uh, yeah, we're not, uh, we're not referring to multiple wills in God, that sort of thing. This is, uh, we're referring to the one simple undivided will of God. But of course, as we, we then describe, uh, you know, salvation history and, and, and how we then um, act in relation to one another and to God, we might, uh, we might differentiate as the reform tradition has between say, okay, God's moral commands and his secret providence. Well, let's, let's end on, uh, two doxological notes here. And you, you bring John Owen, uh, his doctrine of communion with God into the conversation, maybe, uh, speak to that a bit. And then, um, and then we'll, we'll end on a, on a quote that I want everyone to hear. Well, uh, this is, uh, you know, when I was writing, this is the, you know, the last chapter of my book, Simply Trinity. And when I was writing it, you know, it's uh, when, whenever you're talking about inseparable operations or divine appropriations, these are deep waters, right? 
we're talking about uh, some very deep truths, and it it takes some you know uh, theological muscle to to, uh, to to actually work through them and and make sure we're uh, not falling in into uh, you know uh, any type of trinitarian error. But uh, I will say this: at the end of it, there's a huge reward, um, the carrot, so to speak, in front of you. Because uh, so many, both the, the, the church fathers as well as um, the Puritans, they understood that, well, if we get the Trinity right, uh, we then can have communion and fellowship with this triune God in a way that surpasses uh, any type of communion or fellowship uh, that, that depends on an erroneous understanding of the Trinity. And John Owen is is really exemplary at this point. Uh, we think, for example, of his book, Communion with the Trinity or Communion with God. And uh, you can see both inseparable operations and appropriations uh, at play at this point. On the one hand, as he's describing this communion, uh, John Owen will say, well, listen up, Christian, you and the church as a whole, you can actually have communion with the whole Trinity. Uh, anytime you enjoy uh, enjoy communion at all, and and he says he says this if I can quote him by what act soever we hold communion with any person, there is an influence from every person to the putting forth of that act. That's you know very John Owen like uh, <laughs> to Amen. put to put it that way. Uh, what he's after is this: he's basically saying indivi- the Trinity is indivisible in essence, and so they're inseparable in operation, and therefore to enjoy fellowship with one person is to to come under the influence of all three. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, I, I, you know, we quoted him earlier. He said this when he was contemplating God. You know, he said, I, I have trouble conceiving of the one without being illumined by the splendor of the three, and no sooner do I distinguish the three than I'm carried right back to the one. So that being said, um, John Owen also made another point. Uh, he said, well, we can also then, in light of appropriations, we can also uh, have communion with each person of the Godhead in a way that uh, is fitting and corresponds to each person's uh, personal property or eternal relation of origin. So he would say, let's let's take this out for a test run. Uh, what about the Father? Well, the Father is unbegotten, uh, from whom the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirated. The Father is the source and principle of the Godhead. And so he said, well, we can actually then look to, the, to him as the source of our communion. And the way John Owen uh, spoke of the Father, he said, well, from him then flows an everlasting fountain of love. Uh, he talked about it like, um, you know, in the springtime when the flowers bloom. He said it's like sweet nectar from, from a flower. And so uh, this type of uh, language, this fountain of love, well, this is then meant to draw us into communion with the Father. What about the Son? Well, the Son is not left out either. If the Father's love is, is the nectar in the flower, our communion with the Son is by grace, and it's uh, perhaps if we push the metaphor, it is the fruit of the flower, uh, which makes really good sense, right? Because uh, if we've been bought with his blood, well, then we can enjoy his righteousness, um, what about the Holy Spirit? Uh, the Holy Spirit is not left out either. Uh, here, John Owen would speak of that daily cultivation of communion with Christ, but he would say, well, that's impossible. It's impossible apart from the consolation of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us right back to our discussion of the Spirit. 
where Jesus said the Spirit is our helper and he is our comfort. And so as the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, this is the Spirit uh, who then can bring us into communion with the Father and the Son, the very one uh, that pledges the Father's love to us by comforting us, consoling us with all the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Well, I want to to end on a note from Zipporah, uh, this imaginary um, historical fictional character that you deploy really throughout the book. I enjoyed very much just reading along with her as her story progresses and and, and for the crowd out there. She's, this, she's a woman who is baptized by John the Baptist and follows Jesus. And at one point um, uh, earlier in the book than the chapters we've, we've been covering, uh, you have this um, glorious, really, story. And, and in a personal conversation that I had with you, we talked about, you know, um, you're working to try to work through the didactic sides mm-hmm. of the book and these sorts of things. And when I read this, I thought, man, this is so just doxological and just um, just warmed my heart for mm-hmm. God. And so I just want to read this last part. She, she says, um, not long after my paradigm shattered once and for all when Jesus did not deliver my people from the Romans like I thought he would like I thought he should. Instead, he surrendered himself to his enemies and was crucified on a cross. I stood at the foot of that cross, looking up at Jesus, his face splattered with blood, his head bobbing up and down until he had took his last breath. Tears ran down my cheeks, and and though I couldn't bring myself to do it, I wanted to raise my fist at Jesus and scream. He had deceived me. I believed in him. I believed in him. John was wrong. Jesus was no king. He was not the promised one to sit on David's throne forever. But as my grief mixed with frustration, I once more remembered that day I I first saw Jesus on the riverbank. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John had shouted in excitement. I stopped sobbing, looked up at Jesus, his skin now pale and cold, and my tearful rage subsided. What if I was wrong? John said Jesus was the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. Then it occurred to me, by laying down his own life, a life meant to make a sacrifice, he had ransomed Israel. And that's it right there. Um, And the book, everybody, uh, Simply Trinity, uh, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit uh, by Matthew Barrett. Brother, thank you for your work um, on this book. Thank you for your work for the church here. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been great to be on and uh, always, like always, appreciate you in so many ways and um, so glad this book can be helpful to others. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.